0: It's not official yet, but that planned 5.2 percent pay raise would be the biggest raise for civilian federal employees since 1980. Agencies can offer more, special salary rates for hard-to-fill positions like cybersecurity, but you've got a deadline to decide which positions should get those higher rates. And that federal government shutdown threat means the deadline is coming at exactly the wrong time. Here with the details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. That call for special salary rates, SSRs, it's coming up now. What is the deadline, Drew?
1: The deadline for agencies to get those requests into the Office of Personnel Management is October 13th, so they have just a little under a month to get those in. And as you mentioned, this is coming ahead of what is pending but not yet final pay raise for civilian feds in 2024. We, of course, saw President Biden issue the alternative pay plan at the end of August, which officially is planning for that 5.2% average raise for federal employees. But at the same time, you know, ahead of the pay raise every year, OPM does have a standard deadline for agencies to submit these special salary rate or SSR requests that would take effect in 2024 or the following year, if agencies choose to implement them. And these fall outside of that standard pay raise. They're typically reserved for positions with significant retention or recruitment challenges. This can be in certain roles, in certain grades, or even in certain locations where agencies are finding it really difficult to hire. So what OPM does is they take a look at these requests. They decide if, you know, there really are significant issues and they can approve special salary rates based on these requests at times.
0: Now, there actually is a special salary rate approved, I guess, by Office of Management and Budget, the White House, for the cyber positions, IT types of positions that we mentioned at the outset. What is going on with that? Who can offer it? And what's the scope of it?
1: So this special salary rate for some cyber and IT positions, this is something that OPM approved at the beginning of 2023, the beginning of this year. If all agencies adopted the new rates under this SSR, that would increase pay for about 100,000 federal IT and cyber employees across agencies. So the idea here is you're more competitive with the private sector, you have better retention, but there is a lot of uncertainty over the actual implementation of that existing special salary rate. For example, not many agencies have actually agreed to take on the special salary rate and it's a little bit up in the air. So far only the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA is just the only agency that has officially agreed to implement that higher rate. For them at the VA, it would affect about 7,000 employees across the country and give them those higher pay rates. But for the rest of agencies, it's largely undecided. No one else has really stepped forward yet to say, you know, yes, this is something that we're actually going to be implementing here.
0: Is the hesitation because of money? Because if you take 7,000 people and you give them each a $1,000 more, which you're going to give them more than that, but that 7,000 times 1,007 million. If you give them 10,000 more, then it's 70 million. So is it money basically that's causing agencies to say, wait a minute?
1: That's pretty much it. It's going to really come down to agencies' budgets. And as you mentioned at the top, Tom, all these requests that OPM is opening for new special salary rates is coming at a time when government spending is really uncertain. We have you know, neither a continuing resolution nor a full year spending so far coming to an agreement in, in Congress. So, it's still highly uncertain for agencies what their uh, budgets are going to look like next year. And some experts have said that this may cause agencies to hesitate to even consider requesting the special salary rates when it comes to that. You can't plan ahead under a continuing resolution and of course not under a government shutdown either so this might make some agencies less inclined to submit these requests in the first place.
0: Yeah, no pennies from heaven for this one. If you want it, fine go ahead, but you got to pay for it is the problem here and nobody knows what they're going to get. What are the, some of the other SSRs that are talked about? Are there any others besides cybersecurity?
1: So that is the most recent one and the v- is the only one that said that they're going to implement that SSR, but there are a handful of other agencies that can offer similar raises for IT and cyber positions specifically. That's one area where there is a lot of challenge in recruitment and retention for the government. So, for example, if you look at the Defense Department, they have the Civilian Intelligence Personnel System, and they have a higher rate approved for that. That came back in May of this year. And similarly, for a couple of years, you've had the Department of Homeland Security the Cyber Talent Management System, which lets DHS pay some cyber workers at higher rates. So those are a couple examples of, at least for cyber employees, where those exist. But there are special salary rates for other positions as well. A lot of frontline workers, for example, law enforcement officers and other kind of frontline employees do have these special salary rates as well.
0: Yeah. In cases like that, it's not so much competition from the private sector as simply attracting them to the federal sector because there's lots of law enforcement and I don't think they make substantially less than in the federal government, maybe in some local police departments. In the case of cybersecurity, everybody needs cyber people, all the agencies, all the companies. And in the case of Veterans Affairs, other jobs, such as medical and getting the right doctors and nurses in, they're under a different system anyway, Title 38, and that already has greater flexibility for salaries than Title 5 employees.
1: Right. And maybe nurses at the VA, that might be one where agencies could be looking for a special salary rate, or, or that's another area where there is a kind of a retention or recruitment issue. So there are a couple that are at least being tossed around, and at least in discussion, but it'll depend what agencies actually Feel That could be taken on and could be implemented. And we might see that a little bit later this year or possibly at the beginning of next year.
0: And what about higher rates without a special salary rate? Is there any mechanism for that and which agencies can do that?
1: the defense department and the department of homeland security they both have these different systems that aren't through that uh, OPM special salary rate system but they have their own internal systems where they can offer a little bit more flexibility for example at DHS the cyber talent management system that does offer a little bit higher pay for cyber workers in that department specifically but You know, the SSR for cyber and IT workers, that is technically government-wide, so any agency could adopt it if they choose to and if it makes sense with their budget. But again, we've seen a lot of lagging in, in agencies actually agreeing to take that on.
0: And should an agency decide after all of that that they still want to have a special salary rate for this or that job? What are the procedures? I imagine it's kind of involved and probably has a form that has to get approved all over the place.
1: Yep, there is a form involved. You're right about that. And basically, agencies will have to submit um, some data to OPM based on, you know, what are the pay levels that their employees are currently getting, maybe where there are there gaps in staffing for certain positions that they want to get that SSR or special salary rate approved for. So they'll have to get all of that data to OPM by October 13th then OPM a little bit later this fall and into the winter, we'll look at where it makes sense. And if they're going to actually end up approving any of these requests that might come in, then we'd see that approval be announced from OPM early next year alongside the pending federal pay raise across the board.
0: But it is agency by agency. If a particular position might exist in multiple agencies and one agency wants an SSR for it, it's only approved for that agency, correct?
1: It is actually approved more broadly. Cyber and IT position, special salary rate, for example, you had several agencies last fall who were requesting that higher special salary rate for those workers. So they went in on the request together. There, there were a couple of different agencies involved in that. And that means that once that SSR is approved, it is government-wide. So any agency that has these specific positions available within them can choose if they want to or and if they think they can afford it to implement that that salary rate and offer the higher wages to workers in those positions.
0: All right. So maybe the agency should get together, the people that decide these things, everyone take a position, go ahead for the SSR and next thing you know, the whole government has it. Just a suggestion.
1: Yep. <laughs> That could be the case, and, uh, you know, again, it's, there is a little bit of uncertainty there in terms of actual implementation, but it's something that, you know, OPM is asking for those requests right now until October 13th.
0: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader, and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by retired... U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me.
3: Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning.
2: Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that?
3: I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, Um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had Come out or identified their family in any way that you would. you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style In my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously.
2: It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first... How did that influence your leadership style?
3: I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first and so you you just gained extra attention in that, but with that that attention brought a great deal of responsibility.
2: And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school, when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life?
3: Future Farmers of America. Well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through Two Star General and one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA.
2: It's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, Mm -hmm. because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles.
3: I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust, but your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team.
2: Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career.
3: When I started my career, of course, while well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25-30 years collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline those are exactly the skills that you need. So. I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative.
2: That, that is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything uh, many different formally studied leadership styles <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to meet the needs.
3: You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are... Choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership, and true in in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in, <laughs> or you know something something is timed in in a financial type of way, and you have to hit a particular timing point, and so you've, you've got to make these decisions quickly, but sometimes making quick decisions. I I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there.
2: I think it's fascinating. And and maybe what you're also saying is that Part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. Uh, you just mentioned you're you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision.
3: Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because. As your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy. For them, you know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame.
2: Perfect. What <clears throat> is there a figure either from your personal life or maybe in history that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership
3: style? It's somebody who... No one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the busses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision-maker or if I was the decision-maker, the question from Colonel Pollen always came up. "Is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it, meaning did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions.
2: Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time.
3: It's great to talk to you. Thanks.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in
0: Leadership podcast.